0: In his book, The Weight of Glory, C.S. Lewis says something very profound. Quote, If we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling around with drink and sex and ambition, when infinite joy is offered to us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he can't imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Many people today think that following Jesus is a matter of strict self-denial. In some sense, this is true because the Bible tells us we can't worship both God and money, Matthew 6, verse 24. That friendship with the world is enmity with God, James 4, verse 4 and that we're to take up our cross and deny ourselves if we want to follow Christ. Matthew 16, verse 24 But the truth is a dynamic, living thing. It's often a dance between two complementary opposites. This is what I call the dance of life, and it's seen over and over again throughout the scriptures in a variety of topics. Take, for example, salvation itself. On one hand, we're reminded that we're bought for a price, 1 Corinthians 6, verse 20, yet on the other, that the Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance, Ephesians 1, verse 14. One is a push to take things seriously, while the other is complete and utter reassurance that we've already made it. This is the dance of a Christian life, the narrow road that Christ asked us to walk. The Bible says not to swerve to the right or to the left over 16 times. And it's because the enemy is a master at baiting you into the extremes. In regards to salvation, this means either pulling you towards legalism or universalism. Yet, the truth of the gospel is the narrow road in between these two things. Because of my background, I like to think of it more like a dance, since all of us have a tendency to oscillate between one or the other. This is normal and will inevitably happen. And that is exactly why the Bible outlines both sides to contain our journey of sanctification within the right parameters of the narrow road. With all of this in mind, it's important to re-evaluate the maxim that being a Christian means strict self-denial in an ascetic sense. Because I believe God calls us to so much more, and many have missed this very important message in the gospel. We must always start with Christ and Christ's life because he has all the answers. Hebrews 12 verse 2 tells us that Jesus endured the shame and suffering of the cross for a great joy that was set before him. And I believe this is a fantastic clue as to how you and I can take our Christian walk to a higher level by learning to ground it in a foundation of joy. Having grown up Eastern Orthodox and going to Catholic schools, I'm very familiar with the mindset of self-denial. When I was in junior high, I was doing the 40-day Lent fasts of abstaining from all animal products, and at one point, I even committed to giving up meat and animal products altogether, a decision that lasted seven years, because I had gone to a special monastery as a young kid, and I was convinced that meat eaters would burn at the return of Jesus. As usual with extremes... One will push you to the opposite, and in college, I ate whatever I wanted and did whatever I wanted. Like many, I abandoned religion because of its ascetism and instead embraced the world's version of freedom by pursuing the pleasures of life. Although I had let go of God, or at least my understanding of who He is, God had thankfully not let go of me. Many years later, I would look back on these days and see that even then, His plan for my life was being worked out one step at a time. My desire for simple pleasures like recognition and meeting girls eventually found their way into a very challenging pursuit, competitive ballroom dancing. What started as being the biggest fish in the pond at my local salsa club soon became an addiction with increasingly longer windows of delayed gratification. I had to learn technique to look better and get that recognition that I so desperately wanted because the truth is there's a lot of people that were better than me and ballroom dancing is a completely subjective sport. I also had to learn how to lead my partner well, be a good support, and take charge while also leaving space. All of these things were very contrary to the simple pleasures that had snagged me into dancing in the beginning as a totally type A, masculine overdrive kind of guy. As my journey progressed, I also had to learn how to teach. Unlike many in my industry, I wasn't independently wealthy or just had a trust fund lying around to roam around the country and compete all day. Learning to teach humbled me and taught me the value of the process, especially because I had to learn how to teach beginners. As a young buck trying to get on the competitive floor and prove myself, this was the last thing that I wanted to do, but I did it because I wanted the rewards I had come to get. Little by little, God slowly moved the carrot farther and farther away until one day, I found myself sick of competitive dancing and all the things that had originally drawn me to it. Instead, I loved practice. I loved teaching. I loved helping people see how dance related to their life. I loved healing people's life wounds through dancing, and I loved talking about how to perform better in partnership by learning the principles of dance. These delightful pleasures, which I didn't even know existed at the beginning of my journey with dance, were purchased through many challenges self-denial and sacrifice in a similar but higher way i believe this is what god calls us through the gospel he calls us to live a life of infinitely unfolding joy through the discovery of who he is what he does and what his plan is for us as his children these are much higher pleasures than the world can ever provide for us but they must be nurtured through the often difficult journey of taking up our cross Just as Christ endured the cross for the great joy that was set before him, so too must we treat his command to take up our cross in the context of such joy. Our suffering in this world, as well as the self-denial we are called to, are ultimately what God is using for the good so that we are conformed to the perfect image of his Son. This is what's on the table and what lies on the horizon. In this state, our ability to enjoy what God has made and who God is will be perfect which means our joy will be complete and incomparable to anything we've experienced or will experience in this life. It is all about joy, delight, and absolute pleasure in the most godly sense of these words. Most of us know from our own lives that it is human nature to drift either to the right or to the left. Either we drift to a performance-based relationship where... We feel we need to do things to please God or to serve Him in order to be approved of. Or we drift into taking His mercy for granted so that we do whatever we want. This is why connecting our joy to taking up our cross must be navigated so carefully. My goal here will be to show you that God being glorified, our joy being perfect, and life being a trial are all related and part of the same thread. With this in mind, we must never forget that it was because of great joy that the cross was ordained. For Christ, that great joy was delivering the people his father had chosen to give him out of the world. A kingdom of priests that would delight and love his son for all of eternity. What a beautiful picture of love in so many ways. This is why I believe when we look at the cross, we can see the inexpressible love between an eternal father and his eternal son. As those who receive the Holy Spirit, we are wrapped up in this eternal love, and it is the source of our joy, both in this life and certainly in the next. Why all of this matters is that we can easily lose touch with the reason for our relationship with Christ, which is ultimate joy. There is no greater joy than the joy that God has within himself through the interpersonal relationships within the Godhead, namely the Father and his Son, as well as the Holy Spirit. This is perfect, infinite, pre-existing, causeless, eternal, and omnipresent joy. This is the kind of joy that led to the decision to bring a world into existence at the ultimate price. And it's the joy that motivated Christ to endure the absolute shame and brutality of the crucifixion. It is also the joy that is on the horizon, which is the end declared from the beginning, spoken of in Isaiah 46.10, that all things are being drawn to. Without joy, our lives are stale, and in the same way, creation could not exist were it not for the unbelievable and indescribable joy that underpins all that God does. This is why the Gnostics, who believe that the Creator is essentially evil, are wrong. Only joy creates, because joy and life and truth are all intimately part of who God is. Yes, God is perfectly just, God is perfectly holy. And yes, we are saved by faith through grace and justified by God through the righteous blood of Jesus, who is also God. These fundamental truths alone are a stumbling block for many, but once we've come to terms with them and experienced the new birth, the rest of our journey begins. It is during this journey of sanctification and being conformed to Christ's perfect image that if we forget the importance of joy, the enemy will pull us either to the right or to the left, either to a performance mindset with God or to taking him for granted. This is why I believe meditating regularly on joy as the foundation of our Christian life has so much value. C.S. Lewis was not wrong when he said that we are too easily pleased. The pursuit of pleasure is not the problem because God created us to pursue pleasure and avoid pain. The problem is is that the world has taught us to value the wrong things as pleasurable and painful when we're little it is painful to eat our vegetables and when we are old it's painful to sit and read through the bible yet when our eyes are opened we see what is truly worth our time because the holy spirit is guiding the way and in this sense our journey after being saved is one of rediscovering the true joys of life by grounding our joy in god to take up your cross is not just about self-denial, because self-denial, for the sake of self-denial, leads to meaningless and dead legalism. Christ has come to give us life and to give it to us abundantly, John 10, verse 10. He also reminded us that his yoke is easy, Matthew 11, verse 30, and that he is the bread of life, John 6, Surely then there is a greater context to taking up our cross, And what that means is that the self-denial asked of us is actually a means to a much, much greater end, our infinite and perfect joy in a relationship with our Creator. When we delight and take joy in the Lord, He is most glorified in us. To make a practice of delighting in the Lord through praise, prayer, fellowship with others, Bible study, spreading the gospel, helping the poor, and anything else that God calls us to do is practice of our Christian life. As a perfectionist, I'm always fighting the urge to drift into a performance-based relationship with God. Yet, I remember that God never changes and that He needs nothing from me. Rather, God wants an authentic and intimate relationship with each and every one of us, a relationship that is ultimately built on inexpressible and boundless joy. This relationship is a dance where we follow His perfect lead, And in the process, take great enjoyment in the choreography he's made for our lives. A big part of this process that the Bible teaches is to find joy even when that choreography feels frustrating, difficult, unfair, or outright impossible. Yet another part is also in the simple day to day things. Do you delight in the Lord daily? Good theology is important, but nobody's saved because of perfect theology. We are saved by grace through faith, and true faith is expressed in trust. We know even the demons believe in God, but the reason demons aren't saved is because they do not have a trusting relationship with God, and they do not worship God. So faith in a generic sense of believing in God is not enough. The regenerated, born-again believer has trust in God by surrendering their lives to Him. This trust is rooted in knowing who God is and what He wants as well as in the knowledge of how absolutely incapable we are to meet the demands of his law. It is also rooted in the reality that we do not have life in ourselves, but are in fact completely dependent on every word that comes from God's mouth, just as scripture testifies. This desperation leads us to the Savior, and to trust in the faithfulness of his words and promises. And yet this trust in Christ, which is so pivotal to a saving relationship, Finds its ultimate fulfillment in joy. In its most natural and perfect expression, trust always becomes joy. When you trust someone or something fully, it can only lead to joy. And because God is absolute in all things, this means that our absolute trust in Him leads to the most absolute joy that we can ever experience. This is the practice of a lifetime and we'll certainly have all of eternity to master and play with all of its countless dimensions. What a thing to look forward to, and what a joy to keep in front of us, just like Christ as we boldly embrace his invitation to take up our own cross, not for the sake of suffering meaninglessly, but rather for experiencing pleasures forevermore that are beyond all current understanding. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full." John 15, verse 11.